The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Took a break for a couple of weeks. Now we're back at 1 Corinthians. We've been going through this epistle, very long letter that Paul wrote to a church that he planted. Now he's been away for a couple of years. It was a young church, immature in many ways, but highly gifted in a very pagan culture. And they had some problems that needed immediate attention from their former pastor, but also an apostle. And that's how Paul's writing. He's writing as an authoritative apostle whose very writing is inspired by the Holy Spirit himself. So what you're reading in Corinthians are the words of Almighty God himself. And they are without error, and we can trust them as those the very voice of God that you see in the, the pages of 1 Corinthians. Paul didn't make any mistakes as he wrote this at all. We need to be reminded of that. And so we are now in a section. He's been correcting a lot of practical problems and even some immoral behavior that seeped into the church. And now he gets to the most lengthy doctrinal issue in this epistle, 1 Corinthians 15. The entire chapter, one, verse 1 to verse 58, is dealing of this one topic, this theological issue that they were con- confused about, at least some of them. And apparently it was a minority. That was, the problem is stated in verse 12. We've read this before. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you in your Christian church, as professing believers, how is it possible that some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? That is unthinkable, unfathomable, impossible, totally inconsistent with the Christian faith. And so Paul lays out 58 verses showing why. Denying bodily resurrection is totally inconsistent with the gospel and believing in Christianity and following Jesus. After all, the heart of the gospel is the resurrection of Christ himself. And so that's what he's been arguing. And so we looked at the first 34 verses. There is an overarching theme that Paul's counteracting in verses 1 through 34. So if you wanted to divide this chapter just into two, chop it in half, you could say that the first 34 verses... Paul was countering the false notion of the undesirability of resurrection that the Greek, pagan Greek typically had. This idea that after death we have anything to do with the physical body was almost gross to them. Because many of them were just, their desire was to be relieved and unshackled from this physical prison house of a body and that uh, we look forward to when we die when we're just no longer confined to a physical body. And after all, uh, material is evil, and so the body itself inherently is evil, and so we need to be freed from a physical body. That's what the Greeks taught and believed, and so the Corinthians, no doubt, had some folks who were influenced by that pagan thinking. The idea of bodily glorious resurrection was a Jewish concept because it came from the Old Testament. To some of them, that was foreign until Paul preached the gospel and said, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. No doubt talked about resurrection. For us as well. But those skeptics, uh, mockers, bad seed, Paul says they are uh, bad company. We just read that with this false doctrine. Those in your Corinthian church who are dogmatically asserting that there is no bodily resurrection from the dead after the grave, uh, that is a wrong view. It's a heretical view. It's a poisonous view. It's a destructive view. It is a dangerous view. They need to be silenced. That undermines everything we hold dear about the gospel of Christ. 
And so he's countering this idea that bodily resurrection is undesirable. That was probably the common view in the culture of the day. Physical bodies perpetually is undesirable and not wanted. And so he countered that. Actually, bodily resurrection is very desirable for many reasons. He delineated all of those. And now he makes a transition in verse 35 through the rest of the chapter. After countering the argument that resurrection is undesirable, now he counters this idea that resurrection is impossible. Impossible. So now the skeptic, having been refuted thoroughly from the mind of Paul and the Holy Spirit himself, they change the argument and pummel him with another one. Well, okay, so if the resurrection isn't undesirable, it's impossible. And that's the argument for the rest of the chapter, 35 to 58. Look at verse 35. Paul says he's anticipating, as he's moved by the Holy Spirit, that everything he said up to this point wasn't sufficient. There's a lot of information there. And some ironclad arguments, let alone the fact that it came from the mouth and the mind of God and is inspired and binding. Paul anticipates, you know what, this isn't going to silence the critics. We need to address another issue. And maybe he actually heard this through the grapevine from whiners and complainers and people from uh, the letter they wrote or from the firsthand report he had from uh, three of his friends from the church of Corinth. And maybe he heard, yeah, boy, some people are just disrupting the whole church, Paul, on a wrong view of the resurrection. And here's one of their questions. They're saying, the resurrection of the body, that's impossible. How does that take place? And that's verse 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? So, for the rest of the chapter, Paul's going to answer those two questions. These two questions overlap. They're very similar. There's a different em- emphasis on each question, but they're very similar. How are the dead raised? you believe in resurrection? With what kind of body do they come? I don't know if you've ever had this question put to you as a Christian. I have many times. Uh, I remember the first time it was put to me by a, an adamant critic of Christianity. Always coming to me trying to point out errors in the Bible. Then they had a gotcha at one point. And they just knew that there's no way I could answer this. And literally asked me, oh, so you Christians in the Bible teaches bodily resurrection? After people die, you believe in bodily resurrection and that you're going to be in a body for all eternity? They thought that was laughable. And their point of emphasis was, how in the world are dead bodies going to be raised? I mean, that is identical to what this skeptic said. That's what they asked me. It is impossible. How are the dead going to be raised? With what kind of body? And then they continued to make their case that, I mean, after all, bodies decay and turn into dirt and then go into the ground to become part of the dirt? How in the world are they going to be recollected so that God can raise them again like they were the first time when they were here on planet Earth? How's that? And what about people that die at sea and their bones and body parts strewn all over the place? How in the world is God going to be able to figure and gather all those bones back together and put them all together? And that's literally their question. That's what they were thinking. So their presupposition was resurrection means that we are going to come back from the grave in the same identical body we had in this life. That's depressing, actually, isn't it? At least from my point of view. So here in 1 Corinthians 15, you have the most detailed explanation of the nature of resurrection, glorious 
bodily resurrection than you have anywhere else in the Bible. At times, I mean, resurrection is clearly taught in the Old Testament, but sometimes it's just shortened to the point and sometimes even cryptic. But a a detailed uh, delineation of the nature of the resurrection body is given here for the first time in the Bible. It is amazing. It's profound. It's glorious. The, The veil is being pulled away and we get to see in the mind of God and what His plan was and wow, this is my destiny, this is what I'm looking forward to, this is where I'm headed, this is what inheritance I'm going to receive as a believer in Jesus Christ. This is awesome. And there's nothing like it. There is no religion on planet Earth that has a theology of resurrection. There isn't. Buddhism does not believe in bodily resurrection as you see in the Bible. Hinduism does not believe in resurrection at all. It just categorically rejects it and it's very similar to a pagan view of of Greek eternity that the body is a prison house and we need to get rid of it. So we keep going through cycles until we shed the body like a snake would its skin. So Hinduism rejects resurrection. What about Islam? They believe in resurrection. Well, theoretically, Islam believes in resurrection. And the only reason they do is because Muhammad took it out of the Bible. He plagiarized it from the Bible. That's where he got the idea of resurrection. And so all he gave was a concept of resurrection, bodily resurrection, but he didn't delineate any specifics whatsoever so that today authorities in Islam, when they teach on resurrection, they say that, yes, we believe in resurrection. It's at the end of the age. Every person will be resurrected, and they will be resurrected in the exact same body they had in this life. That's their teaching. They will be raised in the exact same body they had in this life. That is totally different than what Paul is saying here. Absolutely not. When we say resurrection, you are not raised in the exact same body you had in this life. That's his whole point. That's the argument to the skeptic here. When you receive a resurrection body, it's not going to be identical to your body now. It will be similar. There will be continuity. But there will also be discontinuity, some differences, some profound differences. And so that's what the skeptic doesn't get. That's the critic who was talking to me. Oh, your body... God's not going to be able to get your body back and put it all together because when you die and turn into dust and then you go into the ground and then you seep into the dirt and then some plant comes along and then uh, grows and sucks up some of your body in, it, in its uh, roots and becomes a part of that those beans and then they, those beans die and somebody else eats it and then you know, on and on it goes. Scientifically trying to explain how, how in the world is God going to recover all of my molecules to put me back together again like Humpty Dumpty. That's not the way it works. And the main thing they're missing is the difference. I mean, actually, there's two main objections uh, that Paul answers. Is Number one, this idea and this notion that a body is going to die and de- decay and have dissolution and then die and be put into the grave. How can something possibly die, be put into the ground, disintegrate, and then pop up out of the earth with new life again? How is that even possible? Paul's going to answer that question. And also their false assumption that it's the same, exact same body that's coming up again. No, it's not. So there's two false assumptions. Question number one, how can life come from apparent death? That's number one. And what is the difference between the first body and the second body? So those are the two main things. Let's go ahead and look at it that Paul is going to address in these verses. So I uh, broke it up into three summary points for us. So let's go ahead and look. And it all has to do with the resurrection body. His emphasis is now on the body. As a matter of fact, I think this is the first time in this chapter where he mentions the word body. He's talking about a physical body. So look at verse 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body? So Paul deals extensively 
the nature of a physical body. What kind of body? By the way, Paul's answer, short answer of what kind of body, it's going to be a spiritual body, a heavenly body. That's his answer. I'll show you how he gets there. Uh, but the first point, number one, is the nature of the resurrection body. They didn't get this. The nature of the resurrection. What was the nature? Well, it was of a different nature. It's not the exact same body you're going to get. Thankful for that because this body is weak. It's decaying. Corinthians says, Second uh, Corinthians, our bodies are decaying day by day, right? We're dying. I remember when I was a kid, younger, and I don't know what grade, but I'd get out of the shower or whatever and go like this with my hands, and then there's all this, like, dead skin. And our science teacher at the time was talking about it, that those are dead cells. And they informed us that our body's continually producing cells, but our cells are continually dying, constantly dying and dying and dying. And then I got to philosophy class when I was in college, and my philosophy professor said that you've been dying since the moment you were born. You're in the process of death. You're always dying. Your body is always replenishing itself, and your cells are always and continually dying. As a matter of fact, there's probably very few cells that you have today that you had when you were a baby, so you're, maybe you're not even the same person. And that made me very nervous. Wow, heavy. Um, but we are decaying. That's what the Bible says. We are subject to decay because of the curse of Almighty God because of sin. So we're going through the process of death, and so I don't want the same body as a in the resurrection that I have now because we're under the sentence of death and decay. So what is the nature of the resurrection body? It's totally different. Let's go ahead and look at it. Um, someone will say, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? And there are this is true. There are legitimate questions and there are illegitimate questions. There are critics of the Christian faith. Richard Dawkins would be the quintessential example who wrote a best-selling book, The God Delusion or Christopher Hitchens, God is Not Great. Their, their books have many questions that are intended to be gotcha questions. Oh, Christians, you can't answer that. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And they're cynical. They, they're not sincere. They're not looking for a sincere answer. They're trying to undermine our faith and basically say we're idiotic and foolish and stupid and unscientific and uneducated. If you read the book, I've read his, Dawkins' book very carefully and that's very cynical. But it's filled with all these questions that aren't sincere. And when you watch him debate Christians, uh, he's not really listening. He doesn't care about the answers. So there are legitimate questions and illegitimate ones. This critic, skeptic, whoever he is, in the Corinthian church has questions. How are the dead? I think they're good questions, but uh, the Spirit of God knows that whoever asked this question was asking with the wrong intent or motive. And it was filled with pride and cynicism to undercut biblical truth because of Paul's inspired response in verse 36, you fool. That was his answer. You fool. Literally, you idiot. One English translation, which is a good translation of the word used. You, you senseless person. You thoughtless person. Especially if you call yourself a Christian and you're at the church of Corinth. How foolish. You fool. Now, Paul's done this a couple of times already in the book of Corinthians. So this is a rebuke that he's called to do under the moving of the Spirit to reprove and rebuke and exhort with great patience and give biblical teaching for this wrong. This needs to be put to silence. This, it is poison to lead God's people to the idea that a bodily resurrection isn't going to happen. It undermines everything. You fool. Jesus would do this with the Pharisees when they asked 
illegitimate questions in the Gospels where it said they asked him a question to purposely trip him up, to expose him, to make him look uh, like a false prophet. Jesus knew that he had the advantage at times where he knew their motives, and he would say the same thing, you fools, you hypocrites. If you read many of the questions posed by Pharisees and Sadducees to Jesus, the majority of them, he doesn't even answer. He ignores their foolish question. Let me ask you a question, or he'll state a truth. So Paul does the same thing here. It is deserved. You fool. Now, he doesn't leave it at that. He doesn't ignore the question. He actually answers the question. So it's a rebuke. It's a strong rebuke, accentuating and highlighting to the congregation, boy, this is serious stuff. There are some things we just can't entertain. We can't just be speculating all the time and questioning God's truth. We can't get into the habit of that. Well, what about this? Well, what about this? Well, what about this? Well, what about this? No. Some things you just have to take by faith. We walk by faith and not by sight as believers trusting God. You fool. But anyway, now he's going to answer the question. And Paul answers the question of how are the dead raised? How is resurrection possible? And with what kind of body? First, by uh, a couple of analogies. And he actually resorts to the science of botany and then biology in general, and then astronomy to give illustrations. Botany, plants, they're everywhere. This is universal. What a great analogy. It's not just localized to the city of Corinth. There are plants all over the world. Plants come from seeds. There are seeds all over the world. It doesn't matter where you are in the jungles of here or the city of there or the pagan place of there. There are plants. There are seeds. General truth. Everybody knows it. Perfect analogy. The same thing with this analogy from biology and just life in general. The same analogy with astronomy and the plants. Everybody can see the sun, moon, and stars all over planet Earth. doesn't matter where you live. Fantastic, universal analogies. Simple. Paul is the master teacher. So here are his analogies to answer the question, uh, how are dead bodies raised and with what kind of body do they have? First, his premise in verse 36, uh, you fool, that which, here's the point, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So when you're asking... How can something die like a human body and then go on the ground and then come up with new, vigorous life again? Hello? Plants do it all the time. That's what seeds are. And he's saying this in an agricultural uh, community in that day and age where their livelihood was dependent upon wheat and grain and the basics of life and farmland and everything else. So uh, that was a part of their culture in that day, more so than for us. So what a vivid, beautiful illustration. I had a green thumb, green thumb when I was growing up, so I had a garden from the time I was about yay tall, thanks to my dad who was a farmer, and so we always had a garden, and I was in charge of it, and had all kinds of plants and vegetables that I, all the way up until I was a senior in high school, and so I could tell, uh, I could distinguish seeds a lot of times, oh, that's a corn seed, that's a sunflower seed, that's a whatever, but there are so many seeds that many of them you can't distinguish, but one common denominator of all seeds is that they're dry, and they're dead, and they're lifeless when you're holding them. They're just bare. They have no life. And that's Paul's analogy. Every seed everywhere is lifeless, dead, bare, plain. That's what it looks like. That's where it starts. And so hence his analogy, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So there has to be death first first to produce life. Verse 37, it goes on. Uh, And that which you sow, so you take the dead-looking seed, you put it into the ground, you sow it, you put it in the ground. The analogy is just like with the human body. The human body degenerates, dissolves, dies, then it's buried into the ground. It's sown into the ground. That's the analogy. Death is being buried or sown into the ground, just like a dead seed. And that which you sow 
you do not sow the body which it is to be. So if you want to grow corn, you don't take a fresh ear of corn and stick it in the ground and water it. You'll eventually take a seed. Or no matter what, he uses the illustration of a wheat seed or kernel. It's dry, you stick it in the ground. Just the seed, the bare seed. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain. See, there it is. As plain and as dead looking as possibly could be. The, the most bare seed at its most rudimentary level. Or perhaps of wheat or some other similar plant seed is what he means. Well, wow, you put something dead in the ground and then it comes alive. How is that possible? Well, his answer is in verse 38. It's God. He's the giver of life. This is my Father's world, right? He's in charge of all things. So much for evolution. This meaningless uh, happenstance of a mechanism that is not associated with a divine mind, power, or purpose just happened out of nowhere, out of nothing. Nothing times nothing equals everything. Makes absolutely no sense. Not scientific at all, by the way. But the divine agent, Almighty God, He is the one that does that. He takes that which is dead and turns it to life. He does that with seeds. He does it with the human body. It's amazing. As a matter of fact, every human body that's dying, disintegrating, and that will be buried will rise again, whether you're a believer or unbeliever. Every person is going to rise from the dead because God will cause it to happen. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 5. Every soul risen from the dead. Same thing in Daniel, Daniel chapter 12. So verse, key, verse 38, how is this possible? But God gives it a body. God determines what kind of seed. He determines what kind of plant it will become from that seed, from the gazillions of different kinds of plants. We see this in Genesis even, and they're controlled in terms of uh, what kind of genus and kind of plant it will be because when God created everything in Genesis chapter 1, when he made plants, he said he created all kinds of different plants after their kind. He created trees after their kind. He created uh, grass after its kind. He created uh, wheat and all those kind of things after its kind, after its kind, after its kind. After its kind is a category, a genus, a taxonomy that God has drawn out, delineated, and kept preserved. It is God. He is the giver of life. God is the one who gives it a body just as He wished, just as He desired. So it's not hapless. It's not coincidence. It's not chance. It's not undirected. It's not mindless. It is as God desired, as he wished, as he determined. He is totally hands-on. This is direct creation from Almighty God. This isn't uh, deism or evolution. Why do we have all the plants that we have? Because God determined it to be so. God is a God of detail and variety and beauty and purpose and design. This is an, Actually, this is an incredibly scientific passage. If you really wanted to scrutinize it, the science of it, it is amazing. It comes from the mind of the greatest scientist in the world, which is Almighty God, the Creator. So it is God is the one. Because you know, so scientists, they can't explain life. Uh, Richard Dawkins, the world-famous atheist, went backed into a corner by uh, the guy that was interviewing him in that movie. And, and finally he said, so, okay, yeah, so it came from the Big Bang. Where did the Big Bang come Where did the first life come uh, I don't know. That was his answer. I don't know. Who gave it first life? Well, the Bible is clear. It was God, creator, the giver of life. And he does it here. God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. So, I mean, imagine an acorn, you know, that looks dead. It's hard. It doesn't have life. It's not green. It doesn't change. If you don't water it, take care of it. It's just going to stay the same. But you put it in the ground, you water it. It's amazing to imagine, almost unthinkable, that 50 years later that is a huge, massive oak tree. 
So there's continuity in terms of there's carryover from the fact that it has the same nature. It's an acorn, it's an oak. But there's discontinuity, there's change from the time it's sown and then it comes up with new life that God gives it and invigorates it and it changes. Continuity and discontinuity is determined by Almighty God and He does that with every seed that goes into the ground. And so that's His analogy that things can die, things can be buried in the ground and things can come out with new life and God is the one who determines it. So when the skeptic asks, well, how is it? How in the world is that going to happen, a resurrection body in the future? My answer to the skeptic is always, well, God does it. He, I don't, scientifically, I don't know. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? That is awesome. It's supernatural. It is impossible. It is a miracle. God can do miracles. He is the creator. He can do everything. It's going to be awesome. I can't explain it, but it is going to be awesome. That's my answer. And that's what Paul says. God does it as he wished. End of story. The omnipotent creator. So then he continues his analogy now with uh, moving from botany and plants to just general biology and life of flesh. He uses the word flesh repeatedly in verse 39. Uh, all flesh is not the same. So here's the, what the skeptic didn't realize. Not all flesh is the same. Not all life. This, this is probably one of the most important verses in the Bible that undermines the theory, not the fact, the theory or hypothesis of evolution. Because evolution's premise is we are just one of many animals. We're not really different. As a matter of fact, we evolved from monkeys. So we're actually in the same genus or kind, really. And Paul says here under the inspiration of the Spirit, no, wrong. All flesh is not the same. All living things are not the same. They are categorically different. Their genus is different. Their species is different. Their kind is different. Their taxonomy is different. Human beings are not animals. Human beings did not come from animals. Human beings were created on a different day, distinct from the animals, distinct from the plants. They did not evolve. It was instantaneous creation, and we were made in the image of Almighty God. And we are the highest of His creation. And that's what Paul means when he says, all flesh is not the same. All living things that you see, humans did not evolve. They are different and distinct from all of the rest of creation and life that God has made. So flesh sometimes can have a negative connotation in the New Testament. It doesn't have a negative connotation here. It's neutral. Flesh just simply means life, that which is animated, soulish creatures, if you will, things that are alive, things that breathe, things that take in oxygen. And he lists what those are. All flesh is not the same. There is one flesh of men, human beings. See, we are different and distinct. We are different. Another flesh of beasts. Those are animal creatures. God made it clear in Genesis chapter 1. God made Beasts of the earth after their kind. He did it on day four. He did it on day five. And then on day six, or then day six, and then at the end of day six, he made humans totally different. Categorically. In essence, in nature. Everything about humans is different than animals by virtue of how they came into existence and their origin. That's what Paul's saying. Not all flesh is the same. So much for evolution. They're made after their kinds. There's one flesh of men. Humanity will always produce humanity. I don't care if it's, oh, all we need is more time, just a zillion years, and then humanity will become something else. No, they won't. Humans will always be humans, and they will always produce humans, and humans will always come from other humans. That's the way it is. That's how God has designed it. Those are his parameters. We're made in his image. Animals aren't made in his image, nor are plants. All flesh is not the same. So humans are of a different kind of life or genus, and then the beasts of the earth are of a different kind of life and Birds are of a different kind of life or genus or kind. And even fish are separate. So much for, what's that movie, uh, Jurassic Park? 
and their evolutionary theory propagated in the first movie that, well, you know what? We've been thinking about it wrong. Uh, actually, uh, dinosaurs came from birds. There's the answer. Reptiles came from birds. So that's the premise. And Paul says, not because birds are of a different kind, a different category, a different flesh, a different genus than birds or from fish and reptiles. Paul wasn't writing this to debunk evolution, but it's just amazing that God's truth does that and man-made theories. And so his main argument here is um, what you need to understand, Skip, that your resurrection body is not going to be identical to the body that you had in this life. God's going to make a change. There's going to be something the same in a carryover, but there's going to be something very distinct and different that equips your body to live for eternity and not die, and also to live in a new environment, not just confined to this earthly world. We need to be given a new body so that we can live out in space and in the next dimension, the fourth dimension, the spiritual realm. And so our body will be accommodated to be suited for that. Like Jesus now. Jesus, we can't see him. He's got a physical resurrection body. He has the resurrection body that we're going to have. And yet he is suited to live in a different dimension. And it's of a supernatural heavenly origin. And so Paul's point is God is the one that can do it. He does miracles. He's in charge of all things. He is the creator. And also you need to remember that the new body that you have is different. There is a difference. Yet identity and individuality will be preserved. Yet there will be differences. That's how amazing God is. Uh, Verse 40. So he goes from botany and biology and now to astronomy as an illustration or analogy. And he says, uh, there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. So there's distinctions and differences all over the place. Everywhere you look uh, with living soulish beings, but also up in the sky. Readily apparent the sun is different in many ways from the moon, and the moon's different than the stars. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, and the heavenly bodies are different than the earthly bodies below. But the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. Verse 41, there is, an, there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. The word glory there just means uh, the, the uh, manifestation of something's essential essence. What is the unique attribute of that entity? That's what he means by glory here. So the sun has a glory. What's its main glory is its brightness and its heat. Uh, the glory of the moon is the fact that it comes out at night and is the brightest thing in the sky. The glory of the stars is they are just all over and twinkle like diamonds in the sky. That's their glory, their essential essence, uh, the epitome of what distinguishes them as that we look at them, the manifestation of their very character that sets them apart from other things. So everything has an essential face value glory. That's like Paul when he talks about the glory of a woman is her long hair, her long, beautiful hair. That's what typically distinguishes one of the earmarks of the distinction of a woman that God has by design. So the glory of the sun is different. So again, he's emphasizing differences. Your resurrection body will be different than the body you have in this life. That's how it is possible. There's one glory of the sun, another of the moon. And get this, another glory of the stars. This is an amazing statement because 500 years ago when it came to astronomy, did you know that 500 years ago, 600 years ago, the most renowned and respected scientists on planet Earth and the most respected astronomers and even astrologists believed that they knew how many stars existed? There are precisely 1,632. That was believed for years. For years. They even named them. 1,642, or whatever the number was. But that's how low the number was. 
That was believed for decades. That was believed for centuries in terms of the consensus of accepted science. So not only did they believe there was a finite number of stars, keep in mind that in 2000 B.C., God said to Abraham, look at the sky, you can't count all the stars. There are so many. There are as many as the sand of the sea. And people say the Bible is not scientific. But anyway, so the scientists and even the secular scientists, well, there's 1,652. And they had names for them. And one of the premises that they also had was they're all the same. Whatever their essence, whatever their nature, they're all the same. They're all identical. Because they look kind of like identical from us, right? Well, lo and behold, then we get these long telescopes and whatever else, and then we're actually able to see further and further and further and further into space as time goes by, and then we realize actually there's more than 1,642. There's at least 1,643, because another one got discovered. Now there's zillions and countless stars, just like the Bible said in 2000 B.C. from God, and the book of Job, by the way. And not only that, they're like, wow, that's not a star after all. That's like a planet. And look, these planets, they look the same from... They're different. Did you know that Jupiter doesn't look the same as Saturn and that Saturn is actually not the same as Pluto the planet? As a matter of fact, I'm going to change my mind and Pluto's not even a planet anymore? Wait, isn't that... So modern science is just now telling us that, you know what? Even the stars differ from one another. When in 55 AD, the Apostle Paul said, oh, by the way, at the end of verse 41, star differs from star in glory. Isn't that amazing? Absolutely amazing. So there is, how can God create a resurrection body that's desirable and how is it even possible? Well, he's the creator. He can do anything. He does miracles. He does it in this life. By bringing life out of apparent death, he'll do the same thing with the human body when we are sown into the grave. As dead people, we dissolve. We will come out with new life, and there will be a carryover and some similarities. And at the same time, there's going to be this powerful, amazing, supernatural difference in terms of our nature and our identity so that we are equipped to live for all eternity in heaven with God as a spiritual person forever. Continuity and discontinuity, that was his main argument in these illustrations. You fool to question God. So that's the nature of the resurrection body. Now let's go on to the second point. That is the glory of the resurrection body, verses 42 to 44. He introduced this idea of the glory of things. Not that it's perfect. It's just, again, the basic epitome or manifestation, the quintessential distinctive of any given entity. And after he makes his argument, verse 42, so also, just as things die in this life like plants and seeds, and then come up as new things with great life and produce much. And just as God is the giver of life in those things and the determiner of those things, and just as there is great continuity and discontinuity, and there's similarity and there's great change that accommodates the new life, so also is the resurrection body, verse 42. So also, we're going to die, we're going to disintegrate, we're going to be put in the ground, we're going to be sown as seeds into the ground. That's a beautiful picture of death, by the way. To be sown into the ground, right? Because it anticipates new life and resurrection. Sown into the ground. Uh, he's, he's dead. He ceased to exist. No. Any dear saint who died in Christ is still alive. They never stopped living. And they have been sown. Their body awaits this glorious resurrection. The full redemption of their body. So also is the resurrection of the dead. 
Our body dies, it decays, it's buried, it's going to come up at some point with new resurrection life after the, the pattern of Christ. It is sown, a perishable body it is raised in an imperishable body. It is sown in a dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And so his main argument here is the differences, the uh, the discontinuity between the first body, our natural body, the body we have now in this life, and compared to the resurrection body, and they are absolutely distinct and different, and that needs to be noted, that needs to be clarified. Christianity is the only religion that teaches this about the nature of resurrection, that gets this detailed. There is a difference in terms of the glory, and that's point number two, the glory of the resurrection body. Some Christians say, well, Redemption and ultimate glory is that we're going to be reinstated back to the way it was with Adam and Eve in the garden. Like, no, that's actually going backwards. That is not glory. That's not even uh, something I would desire at all. Adam and Eve were not perfect in the ultimate sense. They were created sinless with vulnerabilities. Susceptible to horrific things, even though they were sinless. They were not perfected. That's very different than what we're going to be like in heaven in our resurrection body. In in heaven with our resurrection body, there won't be any vulnerabilities anymore whatsoever of our entire being. The vulnerabilities that Adam and Eve were subjected to, even though they were created perfect, they were vulnerable to sin. They were vulnerable to the deception of the devil. They were vulnerable to death, and they experienced all three. The resurrection man, the resurrection woman, will be vulnerable to none of those. It will be impossible to die. It will be impossible to sin. It will be impossible to deceive or overpowered by Satan. You will be perfect. I will be perfect if you know Jesus Christ in glory. That's awesome. You'll be totally satisfied, totally fulfilled. Awesome. That's what Paul's hinting at here. Boy, the resurrection is way beyond anything you could even conceive of. It's more glorious than you could even imagine or contemplate. And that's why you're asking this question. And it's yet to be seen, but he lets us have a little bit of information, basic important principles. So I don't want to get saved and then in glory go back to Adam and Eve before sin. Because that was not a perfect world in terms of ultimate perfection. It was, it was a vulnerable world. And that's why in glory, Revelation says that God is going to destroy planet Earth. God is going... Humans and their litter and their uh, carbon dioxide isn't going to ultimately destroy planet Earth. God is going to. Because that's what... Peter says, and that's what Revelation says. He's going to burn it up and consume it and then create a new heaven and a new earth that will be suited for eternity and will not be subject or vulnerable to any of those things that the original earth was subject and vulnerable to with Adam and Eve. It is great. It's similar, but it's greater. It is eternal. That's Paul's argument here. It is glorious. And here's the, the distinctives of the glory of the resurrection body that set it apart from how we are now. And let's look at them, because they're very specific words. He's not saying one word and then repeating it with a synonym. He's using different words with different nuances of meaning that are actually very specific about the resurrection body. So let's look at those. The glory of the resurrection body. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. Here it is. A perishable body. A body that can die. Here's the point. Yet it is raised an imperishable body. That's the point. The resurrection body will not be subject to death. It, it, it will not be mortal. It will be immortal. It will never die. It will never dissolve. Impervious to death. It will live forever. It's eternal. 
That's the main distinction in that verse right there. Unlike these bodies that are decaying and dying, we are in the process of death right now. You overly confident 18-year-olds or teenagers that look in the mirror about how beautiful you are and how you have arrived because of your biceps, i got news for you. You are decaying day by day. And the big muscle from here is going to move down to your gut someday. And this one right here is going to go whoop and be hanging from your arm. But anyway... Not so with the resurrection body. It can't die. That is awesome. Well, what else about it? Well, it's sown in dishonor. Um, the, the body you have now is sown or put into the grave in dishonor. And I think what Paul's getting at is it's kind of sad and shameful and shocking what happens to the human body eventually after it's buried. What does it turn into? Well, first thing it happens, it turns eventually into a skeleton, and that is frightening, that is dishonorable, that is scary, that is sad, that's the mark of death, that is the epitome of shame and dishonor. That's, I think, what Paul's getting at here. That is the epitome of death. A skull and crossbones, we see it all the time. You see that? What do you think? Death. That's the manifestation of it. It's dishonorable. It's frightening. It's a curse. So that's where your body is headed. That's where my body is headed. For the grave and bones, but it is raised in glory. The resurrection man, verse 42. Very, The most honorable thing of all. It's going to be um, raised in glory that is perpetual and eternal without sin, totally perfect, just as glorious and bright as Jesus' body himself for all eternity. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Well, what else about it? Uh, It can't die. Um, It won't be subject to being dishonorable in appearance. And it is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. So the body we have now, it's, it's weak, isn't it? We are weak, we are finite, we get tired, our body's decaying, we are limited in our power, we have many weaknesses, we have physical weaknesses, psychological, emotional weaknesses, we have spiritual, everything about us as a composite whole is vulnerable to weakness and is weak, very weak. Not so with the resurrection body. It is raised in power, dunamis. Supernatural, God-given, eternal, heavenly power. Absolutely amazing. You know, angels have heavenly bodies or essences about them. And one angel in the Old Testament could beat up and kill about 24,000 human beings. That's a lot of power. And we will be like the angels in the resurrection. We will be like the angels. And one of the things I think that talks about is the amazing supernatural heavenly power that we are going to have as a resurrection people. Uh, It's beyond explanation. Powerful bodies, not weak. As a matter of fact, our bodies are said to be like Christ. We're after the pattern and the model of, all, of the Son of God, the God-man risen from the dead. Power like His. It's good, it'll be good to have some power. We are speaking of weakness, uh, trying to go like on a diet and not eat things. Boy, that's I lack power. I have great weakness there. That's just one example of many weaknesses that we have, the weakness and inability to control our thoughts, and on and on it goes. We will have power, not weakness. I think of First Peter where he talks about the wife as the weaker vessel, the weaker vessel. Maybe this will be undone in heaven. 
Or the wife, well, number one, she won't be married to her husband. She'll be part of the body of Christ, married to Christ, and maybe some of those weaknesses will be gone, dissipated. And now she has great power. Whatever that weakness is that Peter talks about in 1 Peter, gone. That's our great hope as Christians. Uh, what else about the resurrection body? Uh, verse 44, it's sown a natural body, a soulish body, suke, soulish. That means uh, suited for life for planet Earth because even animals have suke. They have life, a soul. Sometimes translated as soul, not the best translation. It just means life that is suited for this Earth, which is temporal and limited and is in the process of decay and will end. So we have suke, human beings. Animals have suke. Your puppy dog has suke, life. Your kitty cat has Sukate life. The cockroaches you don't like in your kitchen have Sukate life. This is what animates us in this dimension for this time. It's limited. It's mortal. It's weak. It's finite. It's temporary. But that's the body that we're confined to at this time. A natural body. Yet, the resurrection body is totally different. It will be raised. It's going to be a spiritual body, not a natural body. Not a suke body. By the way, the word suke is never used in the New Testament in reference to Jesus Christ with respect to life. It's used in reference to human beings. It's used in reference to uh, animals. Suke life. Never used in reference to Christ. Why? Because it's a finite kind of life. It's a life that is only for this world. Life for Jesus. He is always the zoe life. Life from God. Eternal life. Or pneumatica. The, the spirit given life. Jesus' life is totally different. We won't have suke life in the resurrection, man. We'll be like Christ. And that's the con contrast here. So this natural body is going to die and be done with, and then we're going to be raised up in this new kind of body called a spiritual body. By the way, that doesn't mean invisible body. When you hear the word spiritual, that's not the best. Uh, we lose something in the translation here, spiritual body. It's actually going to be a physical body. Your resurrection body, my resurrection body, is going to be, it's going to be physical, and it's going to have flesh and bones. It will have bones. Jesus' resurrection body, Luke 24, had bones. Touch, feel. A spirit, phantom, ghost, doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Touch me. Jesus had flesh and bones. Well, what was the difference? His body didn't have blood, apparently. Blood is confined for this life. The life is in the blood, says the book of Leviticus. Uh, flesh and blood can't enter the kingdom of God in eternity. Blood can't go over into the next life. Blood is for this life. Human blood as we know it. So it will be physical it will have bones. They're supernatural bones. They're eternal bones. They're perfect bones. They're powerful bones. They will go on forever. They can't be broken. Which is kind of interesting. When you have an arm wrestle with somebody in heaven, I guess nobody loses. It goes on forever until you decide, okay, let's stop. Everybody's a winner. So a spiritual body, all it means, the best translation or idea, is that we're going to be equipped with a body that will be accommodated to live in the spiritual realm. That's what it means by a spiritual body. A new body accommodated to live in the spiritual realm, in the realm where angels reside and live, in the realm where Jesus is right now, where God is. In other words, in heaven. And be able to go from heaven and into this heaven. And that's what Jesus could do in his resurrection body. He could appear and disappear just like that. And you read the Gospels after the resurrection. Boom, boom, boom. There he is. He shows up in a room that was locked and the doors. And boom, he just shows up. How did he do that? And then boom, he disappears. And he can eat food. He doesn't need it, but he can eat it. He can enjoy it. Well, isn't that awesome? You don't need it, you can eat it, you can enjoy it, you can never get fat. That is what I call heaven. But anyway, 
Jesus ate food in his resurrection body. He could appear and disappear. Boom, boom, boom. He could go from here to heaven, just like that. And he did in Acts chapter 1 at the resurrection, or the ascension. We also will be able to do the same thing. How do I know that? Because it says repeatedly that we will be just like Christ, especially in Philippians chapter 3. Just like Christ and right here as well. That's going to be fun. Glorious. And that's the spiritual body, accommodated for the spiritual realm. And then finally, the order of the resurrection. In what order? When will this happen? What's the chronology? Well, real simple. It all begins with Adam, verse 45. Uh, so also it is written. So uh, the natural body needs to come for it. We need to go through this life in these decrepit, dying, decaying, weak, painful bodies. God has a purpose. Suffering and then glory. That's the theme of the Christian life. Suffering and then glory. Suffering and then glory. The life and mission of Christ. So says the book of Hebrews. So also it is written. The first man, Adam. The first man, Adam. Paul believed that Adam was a real man. I need to emphasize that more and more today. Adam was a real man. He was the first man. Created on day six. 6,000 years ago. If you don't know how old the earth is, then do a study. Genesis 5 through 10. And Luke chapter 3. There's no other way to come up with how old the earth is other than 6,000 years. The first man, Adam, who was real, became a living soul. There's that word again, suke. God breathed in him the breath of life. Became a living soul out of a pile of dirt. A miracle. Absolute miracle. And everybody who followed in the loins of Adam was a human being just like him, after his kind, after his kind, after his kind. Temporary, mortal, finite, weak, not supernatural, anticipating resurrection. Just after the kind of Adam. That's the point. That needs to come first. That's the order. The likeness of Adam comes first. The last. But there was the first man, Adam. There's a second man or the last man. The last Adam, that is Christ. And after Adam and after death, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. That means Jesus finally came the Savior to save us and rescue us from the first Adam and the limitations of that first natural body so we might inherit resurrection from Jesus Christ by virtue of His death, His resurrection, His ascension, and the life that He gives. He was the last Adam. In other words, He started a new race of people. That's what that means. It's final. It's done. It's the, it's the climax. It's the fulfillment. Nothing will ever come after that. Jesus rose again from the dead, showed us what uh, man, humans will be like for all eternity. That's it. That's why it is the last. It is final. This is it. This is the destiny. This is our goal. He is the last Adam. We will become like Him. He is the first fruits. He is the model. And He is the one that gives life. He gives life-giving Spirit. He gives the Spirit, the, the pneuma, not the, the suke. Eternal life. Zoe life. Eternal life. Heavenly life. Supernatural life is the point. That never ends. That will be the order of the resurrection after the pattern and the model of Christ. However, the spiritual is not first. You can't just skip this life and just inherit the resurrection? The spiritual is not first, but the natural, just like Jesus had to do. Then the spiritual, then the resurrection. Verse 47, the first man, Adam, his origin, he was from the earth. He was earthly. He was limited. He was finite. He was weak. He was vulnerable. Yet the second Adam, which is Jesus, He's from heaven. That's what He said many times, especially in John 6. I came from heaven. I'm the manna from heaven. That's my origin. That's my home. That's where I'm going back. And everyone who's made in my image and recreated in my image through salvation will be in the likeness of me with a new race of man, 
We are not of the origin of the finite earthly domain. We are from heaven. Supernatural, eternal, and perfect. The second man, Adam, uh, the second Adam is from heaven. That is Jesus, his resurrection. Verse 48, as is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly like Jesus and his resurrection, so also are those who are heavenly. We're going to be just like Christ. Verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we were born in the image of God, just like Adam, we're replicated after Adam, so also we will be replicated after the likeness of Christ in resurrection. So we're not going to be raised in the same identical body, is his point. We will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now, even though he says we're not going to be identical to the same body we had in this life, there is going to be a preservation of our identity as individuals. And he's already, he did make that point. So in heaven, you will be able to identify whoever it is, a fellow brother in the Lord. Oh, yeah, you were in the previous life. You were, you're Fred. Yeah, I, good, good to see you again. You look much better today. You, your, your hair grew back. That's awesome. Uh, that's what they'll probably say to me. But So there is an identity that's going to be preserved in heaven. That's clear from, from Scripture. And yet it will be different. And the difference is it will be better, perfect, just like Christ. And then verse 50 to introduce us to next week, and we'll pick up next week. Now I say this, brethren, by summary, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. His whole point there is that the body you have now is not suited for eternal life in the heavenly spiritual realm. That's why God has to make a transformation and give you a body suited for all eternity. And even those who don't go to heaven are going to have a resurrection body that will be physical, that will probably be flesh and bones, and will be suited for a lifetime of torment and eternal hell. I can't even imagine that, but that's what the Bible says. A physical existence, tormented for rejecting Jesus Christ as the only way to the Father as the Savior. If you haven't done that, you can do that at any time. You cry out to God in your own heart and ask God to save you through Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. God will answer that prayer. And then the glorious heavenly resurrection will be your inheritance. With that, let's go to the Father and thank Him for that awesome truth. And also we'll prepare our hearts for the closing offering while we're singing our song for uh, the needs of India. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank You for today. We thank You for Your Word. Thank you that we can be back in this facility for your goodness and generosity to us, your kindness to us. Thank you for this amazing section of Scripture that has been preserved for 2,000 years in your providence for our good and edification. God, just uh, make these impressed upon our heart indelibly so. These are such amazing truths, almost impossible to believe on a human level, and yet you've spoken it in your word. God, this is our destiny. This is our future. You said this life is but a breath, and that is oh so true. Eternity is forever. And if we know you, this great and glorious resurrection is your gift to us. We thank you for that. Look forward to it. You deserve all the glory. We thank you for the forgiveness of sin that we have in your blessed gospel. Pray that you'd be on Every person now go before all of us as we commit it to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.